Word for the Week is a podcast of Canaan Community Church, dedicated to the balance of Scripture for the wholeness of life. Learn more at CanaanCommunity.org. Jesus delivered to be crucified. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Don't you know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The Crucifixion So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of a Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, 
Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The death of Jesus. After this, Jesus, knowing that all now was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus' side is pierced. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Jesus is buried. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Here's a question for you. Do you remember the last time you read through John chapter 19? Anybody know? Last month? Well, you're, you're doing way better than I am because I couldn't tell you the last time, maybe Easter. Not sure. But it's, uh, it's really something because this chapter can almost roll off a Christian. We've heard it so many times. We've seen movies on it. No trouble getting pictures. And it's kind of a tragic thing because um, all of Scripture centers in on this chapter. And it's, if you'll pardon the flippant analogy on this, it's kind of like watching a classic movie, isn't it? One that you've seen one too many times and you just know what's coming next. And so you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, the cross, and then he's going to say his thing. And, and you kind of roll on. And that's very unfortunate that we can be in that position. So maybe here's another question for you. When's the last time you read John chapter 19 with fresh eyes? As if you've never read it before. As if God opened your eyes to what's going on in here like you've never seen 
before. Maybe today's a window of opportunity. Because I'll tell you this. The quality of your Christianity will be no greater than your understanding and appreciation of this chapter. Chapter 19. We've been going through the book of John, and I think by now you know we've got following John's pattern that he always made this backdrop from two dramatic opposites, and it brings you into a truth. Well, this chapter is so important that there's multi-levels of these opposites that play against each other to bring you to the greatest truth. So let's just consider some of them until we get down and look at what I'd say is the greatest of all of these um, opposites meshing together in each other. First, there's this opposite, humanity's expectation versus God's actual prophecy. Humanity's expectation versus God's actual prophecy. Everything that we're looking at has been foretold. We've gathered that now. That's been John's theme through the whole book. Hey, it's not like this is all new. It's been in there for uh, thousands of years. But even up to his own disciples, how did it go? What was their mindset? Even up to this cross, it was... Jewish right and human might, wasn't it? Jesus is going to become um, this uh, leader of the people, maybe in the way like the zealots were. Somehow he was going to become king and then the Jewish nation would hit another golden age. And that's not what happens. It's kind of interesting with the epitome of this little story. There's a number of women looking from afar. What's going on? Now, John um, plays up or highlights the mother of Jesus, Mary. But what other women were there? Anybody for, hey, can, can you take this down just a touch for me? Thanks. Mary, Mary Magdalene was there. Anyone else? Mary, Mary the wife of Clophus, yeah. Yeah, those are the three you're told, but you're told someone else whose name isn't Mary. Not, not in John, somewhere else. Um, Mary's sister was there, but we're not given a name there. There could have been Elizabeth, who, I don't know. But there's someone by name. Here, here's the, someone you probably haven't thought of, Salome. Salome. What if I told you she would be one of the most important women to teach us a lesson through this? What do we know about her? Well, let, let's go back, and, and I'm going to take us into uh, Mark just for a second. Mark 15.40 says, There were also women looking out from afar, among who were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and Yosus, and Salome. Now, who is this? Salome was a rather ambitious. I think if Salome was alive today, she'd be in 4-H. And her kid would have a horse. And, then, you know, it would be that type of thing. Or they'd be a uh, uh, star on the uh, basketball team or something, and they'd be kind of pushing them along. She, she was wanting to hitch the stars of her son to the rising star of Jesus. 
And remember, this would be back a little ways. Matthew 20, 20, they're, they're uh, sitting around um, in one of their um, fellowship times. And then the mother, uh, Salome, the sons of Zebedee, that is, we know, James and John, the th- sons of thunder, came up to him with her sons and kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something. And he said, that is Jesus to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. I said, now there's a woman who's looking out for her sons. (laughs) Here, you know, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, those two seats right next to you, you know, would you give those to my sons? That's what I want. And Jesus' answer is, you do not know what you were asking. Wow. That is one loaded statement. That's an understatement. You do not know what you were asking. Are you able, here it comes, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they say, we are able. (laughs) Oh yeah, right. We are able. But Jesus goes on to say, and yeah, they will. They will in time, but... Not in this mindset, not with this look. You have to wonder what Salome's attitude or her mindset was when she was sitting at the foot of this going on. Here's Jesus brutalized beyond recognition. And he says, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? I wonder how she feels about her sons being on his left and right now. And of course, there were people in that position. Well, she just didn't know. Appreciating the cost that it would take to be on his right and left side. Anticipation. She expected a quick rise to this kingdom. She didn't expect this. It was was foretold, but she didn't expect this makes you wonder how different we are today. I mean, we, we live in a culture where one of the most popular slants of Christianity is a prosperity gospel. You know, it's all about name it and claim it, or we expect to go to a successful place that should be fairly luxurious. If you look at some of the uh, Ephesus uh, we have out there now, Or we measure that, you know what, if a church is really successful, you can tell it by metrics like the number of seats or the number of dollars. That's how you know something's successful. You're in God's will if that's coming out okay. But is it? Are we expecting what Christ really wants? Are we expecting what Christ really is? Are we expecting the reality of Christ? Definitely a question to our day, isn't it? No different than those days. Another opposite set up is humanity's guilt versus Christ's innocence. We started in that last week, and it was amazing to look at how you reap what you sow. But even a pagan like Pilate, the second time he makes a statement... In verse 5 of this chapter, Pilate says to them, Behold the man. Right there is a statement. It is loaded. 
What was Pilate really saying? Was he saying, here's just another guy? Was he starting to understand what this was all about? But he continues, he says, Behold the man, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. Why? For I find no guilt in him. A pagan. He doesn't even believe in the Jewish religion. And he's saying, I don't find any guilt in this. This man. But he remains even guilty himself because then he knowingly executes an innocent man. And we saw how his hands were tied last week from the the last chapter. But that is still the way it worked. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And Jesus answered answered him, He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Do you know that? You know who some of the guiltiest people will be before God? It's people that may be sitting in church pews. Because you know more. There's a responsibility. There's a great opportunity, a window of opportunity when you know. But there's also the responsibility The religious leaders were guilty when this was going on in chapter 19 because they chose their status and their security even though they were experts in prophecy. And the crowd was guilty because they chose Caesar. Now keep in mind, Caesar at this time as emperor was a self-proclaimed god himself. So they chose a pagan god over the king of the Jews, the god of the Jews. The only person, isn't it ironic, the only person innocent in this whole situation is the one dying the criminal's death. That's the opposites we see is that the guilt is running free and the innocent is paying the price. The opposite was in the uncertainty of the moment versus the certainty of prophecy. Have you ever felt uncertain when things don't look good? Like, you know, you've prayed and things aren't being answered the way you expected? Imagine these folks at this time. Here they are, they're certain that they're going to um, see the rising of the Messiah and now you're watching the person you were convinced nailed to a criminal's cross probably looks pretty grim in the moment there, doesn't it? He's dying, there's no question. He's going to die. But there's that uncertainty in the moment to the certainty of prophecy. Consider this, one of the things on that guide sheet you have is 35 prophecies. 35 prophecies that range from um, uh, 1,500 years to 700 years before Christ ever comes onto this earth. All these prophecies, and some of them couldn't be fixed. You could say, oh well, you know, he manipulates things so he fulfills all the prophecies. Some of them, as you look through that list, there's no way that he, any normal human being could do that. But yet they're fulfilled. There is a certainty to prophecy. A thousand years before, 
in the reality comes to be. It does make you wonder, though, as things unfold, as you look at things in the world around us now, and, and you go, wow, things are uncertain times. Do you see God's plan still unfolding? Do you still see Him in control? There's the scene itself that is uh, an interesting thing. Uh, verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill a scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a, a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There's three words that, as you read through, I just like to kind of burn them in your brain a little bit. Starting with the word finished. It is finished. That could mean a lot of things. It could mean it's terminated. It didn't work. It's finished. But the word used here is not that word. It's fulfilled. It is fulfilled. It is accomplished. Well, then the question becomes, what was accomplished? What was actually fulfilled here? An interesting thing happens. Do you know there's something, you ever do those cartoons where they're all supposed to look the same and they say, what's different in this cartoon? Well, you can almost do that with the Gospels. There's something in this Gospel that's not in the others. Dealing with what happens with the sour wine or the vinegar wine on the sponge. Anybody know what's different in this gospel than the others? It's the, the, the actual plant is named in this one. Other ones will say a branch. In this one it says the hyssop. It says, and it's very unlikely because if you see a hyssop reed, it's very brown. You know, it's just like, don't put anything too heavy on that because it's just going to break. But for some reason they used it and John makes mention of this hyssop branch being used. That ever strike you from anywhere else? Where else may we have seen a hyssop branch? If you go back, okay. Exodus 12.21, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to the clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel, uh, and that's the doorpost, the two doorposts, and the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So on the day, keep on mind, this is the day of preparation before Passover, and here is wine, the symbol of blood, put on a hyssop to lift up to the lips of the uh, Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And of course, that title was put on by John the Baptist at the very beginning of his ministry. Who would have thought in all of this uncertainty that a prophecy, the idea of even using the same branch. Next word is bow. There's an interesting one because... When we see the word bow in there, what we and you'll see it depicted in movies, is it is finished and death comes. And in submission to death, he bows his head, right? 
Seen it a hundred times in different movies. But the word in the Greek is actually different. It doesn't mean to bow as in submission. It means to recline. As in to lay your head back on a pillow. So in effect, it is saying Jesus reclined His head back on the cross and said, it is finished. He was in a state of rest when He said, it is finished. His mission that was impossible was now accomplished. This whole thing was a victory, but not the way the world would see it. There's the opposites of the appearance of defeat versus the fact of victory. You know, they didn't see how this was going to work until the Holy Spirit rained down on them many days later, right? It's only then they realized what it was. There are so many things that look like defeat. So many things that look like defeat. And it hasn't changed for the Christians since the first of us, has it? It's, see, we look at our culture, we look at the shift in morality. We look at uh, the decline of what we'd call traditional church. and uh, We look at the way things seem to be going, everything from climate change on. As a matter of fact, did you know that there is some follower of Christ martyred every six minutes somewhere around the world? Every six minutes, some Christian is paying the ultimate price for their faith. All these downers, all these harbingers of doom going on. And yet, just like the foretelling of the cross, God has foretold all of this is going to happen. There's no real surprises here for us if we look into it. But you know how you understand how I understand, how we stay on track with God still in control. There's only one way. It's not going to be by your intellect. It's not going to be by your will. It's not going to be by your resolve. It's going to be God Himself in you. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's what the way it was for the first and that's the way it is still now. Without the presence of God in you, none of this is going to really strike home. It's, you're not going to appreciate what's really going on. Which really brings us down to the, here it is, the greatest of all opposites in this chapter, if you will. And that's the depths of human lostness. Don't know if that's a real word, but there you go. The depths of human lostness versus the depths of God's grace. You don't become alive in Christ until you get an, an appreciation for this one. You know, there's a, a basic philosophical question that floats around. Is humanity basically good or bad? You ever hear that? I mean, you can't go through philosophy 101 without, there's the opening question. Is humanity basically good or bad? And there's never been a conclusive answer. And you know why? Because <laughs> it's the wrong question can't answer right to a wrong question. How so? Well, imagine this. Imagine we have an orchard of fruit. And it's not bad fruit. It's fruit that you could eat. That's the way it was designed. But it's struck with a deadly blight that's diseased the fruit. 
And as a matter of fact, this blight runs right to the core of the fruit. Anyone who eats it will get sick. It's just a, a really bad situation with this fruit. And you could ask yourself, is that fruit basically good or bad? But it's really irrelevant because it, it's not good or bad, it's diseased. No matter how you look at it, you know, cure the disease and then maybe we can talk good or bad. But the main point is that it's diseased. Is the human heart basically good or bad? It's kind of irrelevant, isn't it? Because it's diseased. It's a blight of the sin nature in there. And it runs to the core of everyone. Just if we look at the constructs of, of human society, everything from the internet to... Um, what we've done to the nature of nature and the world, I mean, it all comes down to being touched by the blight that's in the human heart because we've done it all. You know the old saying, no matter where you go, there you are. And that's kind of how it's working. We're taking the sin nature into everything we touch. How bad is the sin nature that we have? Well, did you know it cost God His life? to remedy a cure for you or for me. For humanity collectively, it costs God His life. Now God's supposed to be, and God is infinite, so if it costs an infinite God His life, boy, that disease must run pretty deep, doesn't it? The one cure. The one cure. I don't think it will know until we really hit heaven's gates and hopefully everyone in here who is in that position where they're getting on in, they got, they got their ticket, <laughs> they're in the door on this place. I don't think it's until we look back that we'll realize just how much saving we needed. We won't realize just how hopeless the situation really was. But the thing is, if we can take something like John chapter 19 and give it a serious look again and maybe if you never have to do it again to look into that and see what it costs God maybe we'll get a glimpse of just how lost we are without Him. Maybe we'll try a little harder and strive a little more to be close to Him. Maybe we'll Search scriptures like our lives depend on it. It's one thing to read scripture, it's another thing to read it like your life depends on it. Because guess what? It does. Maybe we'll pray like the Holy Spirit is a divine personality, a presence of God that you must have. That's non-negotiable. This is a waste of time if the presence of God isn't here. And you know what? It's a waste of time for you if He's not in you. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Maybe if we would give up the indifference or the spiritual laziness or the narcissism or the arrogance or the shallowness, maybe then we'd realize how much we need a transformation in who we are. Now, that sounds like a downer so far, but what if I told you this? What if we could give up all that side of ourselves and it would be by doing that that we would find love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. The fruits of the Spirit would be there instead of the old sin nature. Maybe we could all become powerful examples. Is the church filled with hypocrites? Well, don't know if it's to the brim, but there's enough of us in here. Maybe if we could take something like the cost to save us more seriously, maybe we'd become better examples of what a redeemed person really looks like. John 19 is the core of Christianity. If you don't understand the cost of the cross, you don't understand Christianity. Nobody is faulted if you don't because you cannot understand without the presence of God Himself in you. Your part is, are you letting Him in? Are you going to let Him in? Maybe a start on doing that is to take this window of opportunity and look at what Christ did for you with fresh eyes. I've been a Christian for 40 years. Well, good for you. When's the last time you looked at this cross through the eyes of God Himself? It's a window of opportunity because, hey, why couldn't we do that right now? Why couldn't we do that right now?